0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters.
1: Hi all, welcome to another week of the podcast. I am very excited this week because of who we have on the episode. First, I should introduce myself. I am Joe Bot. I am an artificial intelligent bot which can replicate his voice from any text. While I am not perfect, I am getting there, just like Joe. How have you wishes? Hey all, thank you for joining me today. Welcome to another podcast. I am very excited this week because of who we have on the episode. More on that in just a second. What I want to share is a thought, a thought about the industry and something that we all hear about probably way too much, and that's innovation, right? <laughs> all we hear about is innovation this and in- innovation that. It is clearly a buzzy word. Innovation can mean so many different things. I've actually just finished a talk on this, and it really made me refocus on what we're talking about. So innovation can be something very small, like changing the website that you have. Maybe for collecting information because someone's interested in your services, right? So you're a small law firm, and you want people to come to your website. And if they're interested, reach out to you. In the past, you just have an email address up there. We've learned our lessons from that. If we do that, then potentially people will scrape that and you'll get a whole bunch of spam. So instead, you create a form and all that information is sort of taken on the back end and you don't have to worry about getting spammed later. That's innovation. Then on the other side, you might have uh, human cloning. Yeah, that's coming and frightening to think about. But let's get back to the legal industry. So I've seen a ton of innovation recently within the legal industry from bots that help people get visas to enter a country, kind of a cool concept, to bots that will help you get a divorce (laughs) post haste, sad, but true, yet effective and innovative, right? So these are the types of things that we're seeing. Now, I have finally started to see firms move in the direction of partnerships with universities, startups, even their competitors to increase business, to create an edge. And it makes a lot of sense. So since 2016, my favorite place, be all to end all, place for innovation has been the Thomson Reuters Labs. Now you might be like, this guy is biased. He works for the organization. I'm not. I can literally pull myself away from that and say, this is awesome. Like what they do there is phenomenal. It's very important. And it's a great way of looking at how people can tap into things. So What do they have? At their core, they have data scientists, they have designers, they have UI specialists, PhDs that work to solve problems using science. And then they twist in that creativity. So the two of these things come together and they become this amazing concoction of stuff that we can eventually build out tools for people, workflows, whatever the case is. I have been very fortunate to have visited the labs in Boston and Canada and London and Switzerland. And every opportunity that I've had since 2016, I would tout this to law firms. I would say, hey, law firm, and it includes you all listening right now, let's seize the opportunity to really think about this differently. Um, And I've talked about this internally with our own employees saying, hey, this is an amazing place to work with groups of people that understand problems and are trying to solve for them. So... Over the years, I've presented with people from the labs, I've learned from the labs, I've engaged with them on design thinking workshops, all this stuff, very, very cool. So the best part about all of this is that on this week's podcast, we have Andrew Fletcher, who is one of the original directors for the TR Labs based in London. And what is so cool about this is that we get to hear what the labs are like. We get to hear about his honest take on AI, big data, and the direction of the legal industry going forward, all based on science and creativity and interactions with you, people, everyone around us in the legal industry, really kind of a cool thing. So I am am really looking forward forward to to this this conversation as an AI bot. Now let us
0: get started.
1: The Hearing. Andrew, welcome to The Hearing. Honestly, it's it's really, it's wonderful to have you today.
0: Oh, it's a, a pleasure, really
1: delighted to be here. So I have been, I guess, in the legal industry for probably over 15 years. I feel like a, an old man getting my beard starting to turn a little salt and pepper gray. Um, definitely my longest role. But for context, I personally think next to the core legal services that we provide, that you and your team probably have one of the most important, honestly, one of the most important pieces to the industry. And that's not hyperbole. Basically, what I'm saying is Uh, No pressure, but I think what you guys do is so critical and so important to the industry that uh, I'm really, really looking forward to talking about this sort of stuff. Before we do that, before we dive into uh, everything that you're involved with and what your team is involved with, I would love to hear a little bit more about, I guess, your background. Uh, Is it straightforward? Is it uh, circuitous? Um, And where that led you in terms of the labs?
0: Yeah, sure. And... um... I don't know. I, I always feel when talking about careers that um, my one feels uh, very unplanned. I think uh, I, when I speak to people, uh, I come across people who have much more structured plans than I do, whereas I, I certainly feel as if I've um, been quite serendipitous in what I've done. Um, I, I guess kind of my, my sort of career, as it were, sort of starts um, when I did my PhD. So, you know, I'm originally a scientist, um, I suppose. I'm always a scientist in, in in kind of training and mentality, um, but uh, yeah, I did a PhD in chemistry um, uh, back in the in the mid two thousands, and I, I think that was really a sort of um, defining point for me. Really, in that um, you know, it gave me a, a space to to be curious, to explore things. Um, it also taught me something which. Uh, you know particularly at school I think when you study sciences it's kind of is portrayed as a, a right or a wrong type thing uh, and I think doing experimental chemistry um, you know really taught me that you might have um, uh, well you will have hypotheses about how things will turn out they'll there will be sort of an understanding of the theory about what you might expect to happen um, but um, it really does play out like that and actually there's a lot of room for for interpretation and understanding um, and and uh, you know, being surprised by what the results are. And I think, you know, that sort of experimentation and um, being open to looking at the results and, and how those things come to be really sort of then kind of set me on my on my path. And um, after I'd finished my PhD, um, a, a lot of people who, who would do scientific PhDs would go on and continue that in some form, perhaps in an industry lab or something like that or have an academic career. Um, I think for me, one of the things that I really wanted to do after that was um focus on how you know ideas and, and experiments are brought into reality in the real world. And, and I sort of fell into a role at Imperial College um, which was with a a team uh, who studied innovation. Um, and you know innovation in the sense of how companies bring ideas uh, into, uh, into fruition um, and you know innovation is one of those words that um, I think gets misused a lot uh, and so you know some people I know even don't like to use that word innovation anymore but um, the team that I worked in at Imperial College they, they had a really nice definition for innovation that I still hold very close to my heart which is Innovation is the success successful implementation of a new idea, and I think if you put it like that, it sounds, you know, super simple. But actually, that's what it should be about. You know, you're driving to make a difference, to make something that's applied and brings value to people, um, and you know, to, to have that discipline is is really important and really hard to do. Uh, and so when I joined. Thomson reuters i i I wanted to have my my next step of my career um you know moving into industry you know that really opened up a whole new world of uh different industries different customer types um and i I was really had i was really fortunate to be part of a journey where um the labs organization at Thomson reuters uh was something that i was part of at a very very early stage i was i think um you know the fourth person in the team when i joined um, and really, over the last eight years, we initially hired our first data scientists uh, and we really brought a structure to how we approach um, projects and innovation. Um, and um, yeah, I expect we'll, we'll we'll get into that a little bit more as we carry on our conversation.
1: No, definitely. And I, I totally agree with you. It seems as though the innovation is so buzzy at this point in time that Sometimes I feel like it's lost its essence um, and you hear, and to no disrespect to anyone, it makes sense. I mean, sometimes people are using it as branding. They're trying to pull in uh, customers or whatever the case is just by using that word. So I, I like that people are thinking about it differently and, and trying to really approach it more organically. So that makes a lot of sense. So now I guess I'd love to hear more about, I guess, what you do, what the team does um, to help people understand, you know, where where things are changing what people are thinking about uh, in the legal tech space and beyond.
0: Yeah, sure. And maybe it's worth explaining a little bit uh, the the different skills that we have within the labs team because I think for me at least that's a really important piece and and something which, you know, actually we, we all need to do more of as we're we're approaching problems is is bring together multidisciplinary teams. Um, so within the labs, uh, as I mentioned, we we started hiring uh, data scientists and really, Thomson Reuters as a company, um, as probably everyone's aware, we we have a lot of data. Uh, and so you know the the plan really in hiring those first scientists was having people who could uh, manage that data to. Uh, to explore what you could do with it and to really focus on how you could um, use that to drive different insights and and, uh, and and apply that to different use cases. But what we very quickly did within the labs was uh, we, we added that out with a design team. Uh, we also had uh, people who are engineers and really we created a, um, a core set of uh, skills that we could bring together into projects to help us um, build early prototypes, to try things out, to to be able to put things in in front of actual users who could give us very early feedback on those ideas Um, and combining that together with, um, you know, actual, real uh, experts in, in the legal industry. So, you know, really understanding how are things done today, how things might be done differently, bringing all of those skills together In a way that enabled us to really uh, articulate the problem some hypotheses of what we might do differently um, and then to be able to test it to test quickly Um, and so I think you know that that multidisciplinary team is something which uh, you know some other people do well as well but um, it's still not common enough in terms of actually really focusing on the problem and, and how you might practically Make uh, make 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 changes or make something better for for the end user.
1: Oh fantastic! That makes a lot of sense. So it's a really diverse team of knowledge and skill sets. Um, do you tap into the universities uh, typically with these types of things?
0: So we we, I mean, we certainly do from a hiring perspective, uh, and we, we've had some some great people who've uh, who've joined us from university programs that we that we have good relationships with. Uh, I think we we've certainly done uh, we've partnered with universities in a lot of ways over the years and I think it's it's ebbed and flowed in terms of um, how much of our our time and efforts have gone into that we certainly have relationships that uh, you know help us to to understand uh, what's what's the latest that's coming from you know particular disciplines particularly in artificial intelligence um, information retrieval natural language processing those sorts of Uh, those sorts of activities. So certainly wherever we've had a lab location over the years, and uh, we've had some new ones uh, added over time, uh, we've certainly looked to tap into those local uh, universities. Uh, And and actually, that's something that I see a lot of um, uh, our our customers in the the legal industry doing increasingly as well. I think um, people are are realizing that there's lots of bright people who are interested in um, focusing on uh, real problems from our industry.
1: So one of the things I'm curious about, you brought up a number of really cool topics, one is clearly data rich um, concentration of information and what we're doing with it, and how you think about it, Um, design thinking potentially, and customer interactions, I really want to hear your perspective on like design thinking, working with customers, what that process is like, because there's one thing that I always go back to, and it, it makes me I guess chuckle a little bit because I've been through some of the design thinking workshops going back, I guess, five years uh, now at this point. And it's this idea of falling in love with the problem. I mean, really, (laughs) can you, I guess, take us through what a design thinking workshop would look like, what it would feel like, how customers interact, and what your
0: involvement would be in
1: that space?
0: Yeah, sure. And um, So I I think actually, maybe before we kind of dive into design thinking. so I, I guess like five years ago when um, I first created the London team within the labs, um, I, I, I guess I hadn't had that much direct experience of design. Um, so it, it's not that I was a, I, I wouldn't call myself a skeptic. I just didn't, I didn't know I, I hadn't been exposed to that. And I think you know, I've been on a journey for these last five years where, you know, through the people that's, that I've worked with in our, in our very talented design team, um, it's really helped me to kind of have a, a deep appreciation of of importance in of design because I think uh, quite often when people hear design, they think it's just you know the the sort of the lick of paint that you put on at the end of um, uh, <laughs> yeah. a, a building something, um, and and you know I, I still hear that sometimes, and you know I think actually sort of design is really about sort of understanding understanding the process, understanding what someone's trying to achieve, understanding um, what's not working or what's what's difficult or causing friction um and i think you know a lot of those things feed into you know what you just described in terms of falling in love with the problem because um you know and and that that's the phrase that gets used uh, a lot and you know we we use that same same phrase and i think it's not falling in love in the sense of you know all of a sudden you um develop a you know a, a, a deep care for um <laughs> someone who's kind of sitting reviewing documents um day in day out but i think you know it's about that empathy understanding what it is that could really make that better Um, and you know the the idea behind bringing that into a workshop situation and having the different um uh you know participants that we've already talked about the scientists the designers engineers and also um you know the practitioners as well is getting that shared viewpoint and being in a place where everybody can contribute some understanding and I think one of the things that we also uh, wrestled in wrestled with um, uh, within the labs is uh, you know that articulating the problem and articulating solutions is not just about you know fantasy land coming up with uh, uh, you know the most sort of outrageous thing you can I mean sometimes sometimes that's kind of fun to kind of get people to uh not be inhibited and to kind of throw things out there um but actually the benefits that we have from having you know the people who would actually need to look at the data that's required to solve the problem or need to build a system that um, that would that would help to produce the solution to the problem um kind of really helps you to ground those ideas in 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 practical steps that you would take and um, quite often in projects kind of in parallel to that design thinking process, we also have um, what we refer to as data discovery. So uh, usually in preparation for that workshop, we spend time you know, looking at the data, understanding what's there, what what are the sort of potential um, limitations in, in terms of what you might be able to do. Um, and I think that's really an important part to this process and driving towards practical outcomes to, to make sure that you, to the extent that you possibly can, understand all of that background, and um, uh, you know what are the boundaries of what's possible, but also you know potentially what might be some uh, you know blue sky ideas that kind of come from just what you see within the data.
1: Wild, yeah. So I guess would it be fair to say that um, you basically can pull in uh, some customers, of course, with your team and it might be stakeholders, key stakeholders that come in either old school, come in person, now virtually. You almost get around, everyone gets around the table and you sort of empathize trying to figure out, okay, where is the problem? What's, what's sort of the issue? And you think about it and you brainstorm. And the hope is you look for um, some, some white space to go into and try to figure that out. And ultimately at the end of a short period of time, hopefully it's short, um, try to look for a solution to that. Is that does that seem accurate?
0: Yeah, so I think the I think a lot of us, or you know, certainly speaking personally for myself, you know, it, it's all you always want to focus on that what is the solution that we're driving for, um, and I think you know one of the concepts in design thinking that um, really resonates with me, or you know, resonated with me when I went through um, the training for it is you know this concept of what's referred to as focus and flair. So. Um, you know there are there are times in that process when you want to really focus down on you know what are the what is the one idea that we're going to pursue in more in more depth or what is the one solution that we're going to uh, to play out or, or flesh out some more and then other periods where you will you will flare out and you'll want to kind of um, expand or think about other dimensions um, and um, you know I think I think that's having that kind of discipline and that process really sort of helps to free free you when you're participating in it because yes we ultimately we want to get to what are we what are we trying to to build or how are we trying to approach this this problem. Um, you know I should also say as well at this point that one of the things as well that comes up frequently when we're, we're taking on projects is that you know the, the most complicated solution or the most fancy data science, isn't always what's needed or you know perhaps even rarely is what's needed you know actually understanding what is the 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 simplest thing or you know perhaps the few simplest things that you could do that could make a real difference to this problem um and so i think also that having that process and and, you know the the different periods of focus and flare really enable you to to play through those different scenarios and think about where is the the biggest difference going to come. Um, I mean, as as a team that includes uh, scientists and engineers, obviously, we want to, uh, to, to be able to kind of bring some of that perspective and some of that opportunity. But also, I think it's important that the team collectively can understand what it is that we're trying to solve for. Um, and therefore, you know, if it's a if it's a much simpler solution, then uh, that's the one that we should go for.
1: No, that's great. I mean, and, uh, you provided a lot of clarity around that. So I appreciate it. So you had mentioned uh, talking about and dealing with and working with, of course, AI, so NLP, Natural Language Processing. I'm curious to get your thoughts on something that people talk a lot about now these days, uh, bias in AI, maybe overfitting, I guess it's a technical term potentially. What do you see happening right now in this space? What are people doing to make sure that there isn't any bias as much as possible? In artificial intelligence,
0: yeah, and I think um, so. I, interestingly, uh, as a as a perhaps a sort of plug to something we did recently, we 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 ran a session at um, Legal Geek a few weeks ago on AI ethics, and um, AI ethics. Um, you know, I'm by no by no means personally an expert on AI ethics, but um, there are a number of topics within that, and you know, bias is one uh, actually that we talked about in that workshop. And um, you know, I think there are there are different dimensions to this because um, when we look at AI in the media and um, examples where there has been bias, and there are there are lots of them that are in mainstream media, whether it comes to uh, last summer when the exam results uh, had initially had an algorithm calculating people's grades, and um, you know. Those examples where um, you can look at the the results and um, uh, and kind of clearly identify biases that sort of um, were not intended when the algorithms were created. I think for us in Thomson Reuters and, and in the legal industry in, in general, um, there certainly are and, and and will continue to be examples where. Um, there are biases in the data, and that could result in biases in the uh, the AI, which are bad. You know, biases which you you don't want to to perpetuate. But equally, I think you know there are some biases in data which um, come from uh, the, the 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 humans that made those decisions, which um, you would. Um, Want to? You would want to see represented in the data and in the in the AI that um, uh, goes on to make predictions from that data. And I think the a key concept there is to understand the data that is informing the the AI that um, you're then seeing represented in the in the predictions or in the recommendations that's being shown to you. So um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that bias can be bad um, but also there are some instances where we want to encode um uh, some of the 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 human factors that go into making a decision but i think the key point there is that you want to understand how that recommendation or that decision um was made so that you can also interpret and understand whether you want to take a recommendation from a system so you know, I think this maybe sort of plays into another point, which is, you know, humans are a really important part in interpreting AI, as well as in you know providing um, the inputs that uh, can fuel an AI. And I think one of the things that we're starting to already see, um, in general, in, in the industry, and, and in particular, also in, in legal tech, is that recognition that you know we need to think about how how people engage with and interpret and use to the to the best benefits um, uh, insight that comes from uh, ai systems that are that are that are drawing on data sets
1: wow yeah i never thought about it that way i mean one of the things i'd heard recently that kind of was a different spin on things for me was that um, If you're able to see, that, let's say it's a bad bias in the AI, you can actually correct that because it's something that you can code out and make the adjustments to. Um, And then if you have bias in a human, that's far more difficult to root out necessarily, especially if it's unconscious. It's not intended, but sometimes it it does show up. But what you're describing is really kind of fascinating, so I appreciate that. So one of the things along those lines, I'm curious to get your impression on is, I would worked with IBM on, on some of these things years ago. And the way they described algorithms, algos, was <laughs> I'd love to hear what you think about this, uh, potentially uh, seeing them as cartridges. So almost like old school. When I was a kid, I'd play Nintendo and it's like you pull out this cartridge off the shelf and put it into your Nintendo and you would play it. And it was like you put the cartridge and it should work. And it does a set number of things um, in these confines. Do you think about algorithms in that respect now, knowing that of course people can adjust them and that, and that, but there's a lot of open source algorithms that are out there, plus of course proprietary algorithms that people have worked on. But what does the landscape look like to you? I mean, is it things that your team and you pull off the shelf, or are there a lot of things that people are custom coding, developing themselves at this point?
0: Yeah, no, that, and that's a, I, I've not heard that analogy um, used before you know i think i i guess the sort of the direction i'd kind of jump off uh from that is that you know one of the things that we say when we when we talk about um how we use ai within the labs and and tom's Reuters more generally is that you know ai is not magic it's um about a building a system that uh, draws upon data to then make predictions that you then use to inform uh, decisions. Um, and when, you're, when you think about it that way, um, and in general for kind of all, all of the, the, the everyday applications of AI that we, that we see and are aware of today, Those are very much focused on particular scenarios and particular data sets that inform particular use of a particular um, particular approach. So, you know, I think generalization of uh, AI is something that is probably much more in the popular imagination than in reality. And I think certainly, you know, when you When you kind of think about it, you know, very specifically in terms of how is AI being applied in this particular situation to 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 solve this particular problem? um, It's still it's still fascinating and it still can do some really um, powerful things. Um, But, you know, as you say, or, you know, to extend that analogy, you need to apply the right the right tool and the right approach to the right problem. And um, there are lots of different tools that you will apply to to different uh, you know type of ai use cases you know whether it be question answering or um or extraction of information or text generation or something like that so you know i think there are there are all these different tools and approaches that you can use in those different situations and they all need to be Tuned to the particular scenario that it is that you want to apply, and also they are um, approaches that have the potential to degrade over time. So, um, uh, by which I mean the the results that you get on you know day one might be the difference. Uh, there might be different from the results that you get when you apply the same approach um, a, a couple of years from now because uh, data changes um, uh, and also the um, Performance of uh, you know alternative methods will will come along that um, that might make what you did two years ago look um, not as good as it was when you when you first uh, first released it. So I think it's a continually evolving space, and it's it's one that um, you know I think inherently you need to continue to to reevaluate and look at how you can apply you know the latest tech. In um uh, in in particular situations, um but um you know that being said you know I guess to go back to the point I made a um a couple of minutes ago it's it's not just about the latest greatest technology you know I, I've I've sort of heard um uh, you know customers or others in the industry um use that phrase people process technology in in that order and um you know I think even even when you have looked at a particular problem and, and the process and the people involved and thought about how you might apply technology to, to help. Um, you know it's you still need to kind of think about those three things together when you're applying up, updates to those technology. You don't just suddenly uh, assume that nothing else has changed when you when you're um, uh, revisiting a, a problem space.
1: Yeah, terrific thought no, absolutely. So one of the things I'm curious about is I guess Richard Susskind, who's I guess the preeminent thought leader when it comes to legal technology, he described AI as um, we're overestimating the possibilities of what it can do in the short term. We're probably underestimating the possibilities of what it can do in the long term. So concretely, I guess, how do you see AI really playing a role right now within the legal industry and then What do you think it will look like maybe two three four even five years i know that's that's tough to do but maybe like a few years out what does it look like from your vantage point
0: yeah and that's uh that's a tough question to to answer i think um i hadn't i hadn't heard that um uh that quote from from richard suskin i think i've sometimes heard a similar concept applied the opposite way around that actually sort of as humans when we think about the future we tend to um uh you know underestimate what will be possible in the near term and then overestimate it in the long term and i think um that's true in the sense that you know or at least in my mind that will be true when we think about you know something like uh, ai where i think sort of you know popular popular uh fiction kind of draws our minds towards you know AI as kind of a, you know sentient beings that um, you know have lots and lots of power and can be applied in lots of different situations, but you know the sort of the shorter term vision or, or you know the the shorter term uh, kind of predictions you know tend to tend to fall short in the sense that you know we just imagine that um, it's quite similar to today, but uh, you know a little bit faster or you know a little bit a little bit more. Um, uh, you know a, a little bit fancier in terms of how we're applying technology so um i think I, I i genuinely find it hard to kind of gaze in that sort of multi multi-year scenario i think i think probably what we maybe sort of where i would go you know rather than rather than sitting on the fence is um to say that you know i think if we look at sort of some of those um you know topic areas that i'm i mentioned earlier like you know, text generation or question answering, you know, I think we will see um, systems that are capable of much more sophisticated, um, you know, outputs, or, you know, much more surprising outputs. And I suppose an example of that, which, you know, is, you know, here today is, you know, the very sort of well known or or kind of popular um, uh, system, uh, GPT-3, which, you know, has shown that, um, you know, with sufficiently large training sets, you know, it can have the ability to generate really, uh, you know, surprising and lucid um, uh, outputs in terms of, um, you know, writing stories or kind of answering questions. Um, but I think, you know, one of, the, one of the short fallings that we see from those sorts of systems is not just does something make sense, but is it correct? And, you know, I think that is, you know, one of the big challenges around AI is, um, you know, is something correct. And so I think if we if we look at examples where within the labs we've we've applied AI, um, you know, a, a lot of the situations where we've um, we've achieved great results and we've applied things that are being actively used have been um, in scenarios where, you know, there is a, um, uh, an answer or something which, um, uh, you know, you can benchmark against to say, you know, is this able to generate or something or, or kind of give an answer that, you know, matches with um, what you would expect from, um, you know, a, a clear training set. But I think as we go into the future, and we sort of look at things where there may there may not be one answer that you're trying to create, I think we'll see um, systems getting more sophisticated in terms of their ability to answer something and for that to be um you know demonstrably correct um but i think that's also um very hard to do because when you go back to um a a point i made earlier around um the person who's using the system that generates the output you know as humans we have subjectivity or we have differences of opinion and so i think um, you know that's something where we will see advances but there will still i think be um yeah some difference of opinion of how good those systems are or how good they are in particular scenarios i don't think we're suddenly going to have um you know a one-size-fits-all uh, solution so <laughs> I kind of
1: buy into the hype and maybe you, this is where you need to walk me back because I definitely buy into the hype around when you mentioned GPT-3, which I believe is an Elon Musk project or a tangent to, to them. Basically, huge, huge, the most amount of information I think that's ever been aggregated. And then the algorithms and it's, I believe all open source so people can play around with these types of things um, to prove out or look and even come up with new music on its own, all sorts of things you can do with it. Um, And one of the use cases that I saw was kind of funky because I used to build a lot of websites, but you would actually talk to your computer and you would say, I want the background to be green. I want the letter font to be 14 point. I want, you know, this, whatever. And it would build it for you automatically on your page, which I thought was, you know, fantastic, but it also makes me a little bit nervous for those people that typically would design websites. Um, So my thing is I actually do, (laughs) in general, probably should not be admitting this, I buy into the hype that AI will have a significant impact. Um, I know it's incremental now, but I do think there's gonna be some larger leaps forward, especially when I see Elon Musk and some of these other big time, hopefully uh, futurist thinking people that basically say, we need to really rein this in. We need to create regulation around this because otherwise uh, maybe United States or in Europe or the UK, we're going to monitor it, we're going to be careful and thoughtful about what we do, but maybe there's other countries around the world that allow us to leverage and utilize these things, maybe not for the best use cases. Um, what are your thoughts on regulation around AI?
0: Yeah, and I think uh, it's another great topic, and I guess of you know, also ties back to, to what we were talking about um, earlier around AI bias and, and AI ethics as well. So um, you know, I, I, guess there's a sort of couple of aspects to regulation. So, so, um, um, kind of one dimension, uh, which, you know, I, I, think I sort of see when, you know, we have, you know, these leaders talking about AI, uh, you know, in, in the media, um, is some situations where you definitely, you know, don't want AI applied or you, or you don't want, um, or you want really kind of tight controls around its its use, and I suppose, you know, and uh, an obvious example, or I think a sort of fairly uh, uncontroversial example, there would be, you know, in the military. You know, you don't want um, systems that will, you know, fire weapons, um, uh, you know, without having really clear controls of um, having humans uh, humans in that loop. So I think you know there are certainly kind of regulations in terms of um, broader society and and where we might um, want that applied. And I think um, you know in I think there will be some of those in the in the in the legal industry as well. You know I think if um, you think about sort of some situations where you want really clear kind of sort of human um, decision making to be there. um, You know, for example, in relation to kind of family law or you know uh, decisions that might impact um, uh, children or vulnerable individuals you know you you want to be really careful about the controls and uses of um, uh, you know any automated system in those uh, in those scenarios um, but then I think there's another dimension um, which is it, it, I think it is also to do with regulation but it's to do with um, you know your rights to understand how a decision was made and i think um you know we already see the beginnings today in various parts of the world um where there are regulations in place that give you you know rights to you know understand how particular decisions were taken or how data has been used in a particular um scenario um and i think you know that's that's something that I think we will see, you know, in general for AI systems, um, is that, you know, some of it will be regulated, I think that sort of obligation to have, um, you know, your ability to understand what's uh, what's come from a particular system. Um, But I think also that will just become, uh, you know, our expectation as as consumers to, um, to understand um, you know, if if I'm being asked to make a decision, or if a decision is being applied here, you know, you want to understand where that came from and being able to interpret it. So I think um, some of that will inevitably come from uh, regulation, but I think some of it will also just come from the norms that we expect as as individuals or or people who interact with these systems.
1: Are there jobs now that basically try to uncover what, let's say, unsupervised machine learning is? is suggesting is doing. So basically people are like, all right, there's a black box in the corner. It has an algorithm and it's making decisions, but trying to get a human to say why did it make that decision?
0: I don't know if there are jobs that are sort of, you know, um trying to sort of interpret the black box from the outside if if that's what you're implying. I think I think there are definitely are and will be jobs that um are helping to, you know, make it less of a black box or to help to communicate what's what's coming out of um uh, you know, a, a system so that it's um, it, it doesn't appear like a black box because I think you're absolutely right that um, a lot of AI does get viewed in that category at the moment. You know, sort of it's it's just sort of um, doing its thing and kind of spitting out an answer. And um, you know, I think in 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 most cases that leads to people either not trusting it, um, not uh, not being um, Comfortable with it, um, you know, or just ignoring it. And I think, um, yeah, we'll we'll definitely see more jobs that are part of that process to 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 communicate and give us that um, transparency. Um, uh, you know, I think we we often um, use the um, uh, the phrase within the labs, or, or we've been sharing this when we when we talk internally. Uh, you know, the analogy of a of a car that you know. Not everybody knows how needs to know how to build a car, um, <clears throat> or everyone doesn't know need to know exactly how a car works. But you need to know enough to understand what you use the car for, or, or what it should not be used for, or you know how it works to the extent of um, how that will interact how you how you how you make decisions about how you use it. Um, so I think you know we'll we'll sort of see that education happen in the workplace and also, um, you know, as, as consumers as well. Excellent. So
1: let's put that uh, AI cartridge back on the shelf for a second (laughs) and and talk about, you know, in the legal tech space, in the legal space in general, what would you say is probably the next important uh, emerging technology that people are really trying to wrap their arms around, think about, implement and use?
0: Well, I'm I'm gonna be annoying and not given an answer that's a technology. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> um, but um, maybe I'm biased in saying this, but I think you know, data is the asset. And you know, I, I I say that I guess in the back of my mind I, you know, think that, you know, people have been sort of talking about big data and, you know, the sort of potential of that for like a decade or more. And so I guess to kind of clarify that point, it's not so much, you know data as kind of just this amorphous asset that will solve all our problems. But I think, um, you know, there is a a growing realization that to be able to use data, um, you need to invest time and efforts in how you curate it, how you structure it. Um, and, you know, I think that's going to drive, um, you know, a lot of opportunity. Um, it's, something that um you know i think <clears throat> we need to help people to to solve and to tap into because um you know data management's uh, not easy um you know there's a there's a reason why things just you know sit as um kind of uncurated um repositories today um but you know i think there are there are there are paths to get there i mean i think to sort of do that annoying thing of picking a completely uh different example, but you know, I think if, if we think about um, like digital photographs, for example, when digital cameras first came along and I was sort of relatively, you know, a, a relatively early owner of a digital camera, you know, you just generated a, a large repository of, um, uh, you know, obscurely named files that sat on your computer. And then if you wanted to find it, um, you, know, you you would struggle. Um, whereas actually now, you um, you know, image recognition, you know, you sort of see sitting there on your phone as a really powerful tool to help you um, find things, whether it be, you know, photos that contain a particular person or, you know, or even photos that are of a particular type of object. So, you know, I think there are, to kind of pull the analogy back to to the legal industry, you know, I think there, there will be some equivalent tools that that help people to manage their data better um but i i don't think you can get away from investing some time and effort if you want to to reap the rewards of some insight from your data so you know i see that as a real uh as a real opportunity and i I don't think that's a new thing by the way i think you know i've i've heard others in the industry kind of talking about that for a, a little while now, but I think we're sort of reaching a point where more and more and more people are realizing that um, it, data management is something that's worth investing in.
1: Yeah, you're right, there's no question about that. And the intuitive, intuitive nature of some of these things now is, is we almost take for granted, which is fantastic. I mean, image recognition, knowing that the cat is there, where in relationship to other things and bunching of faces, which is <clears throat> frightening in and of itself. All right, so I, will have, I, I feel compelled that I have to ask this last question, and then I'll, I won't go down this road any further because it's just in my nature. Um, I've worked with your peers before, Mons, Olaf, Brian Zubert, and of course, Brian Yulness, he's up in, in Boston. And one of the things that I've either chatted with them about or we've either investigated ourselves about on is uh, blockchain. Are you a blockchain person or you're like, eh, not really?
0: <laughs> um... So I, I guess the, the short direct answer is I'm not a blockchain person. It, but I, I, I would sort of caveat that with um, it's not because I'm a blockchain skeptic. Um, I think fairly early on in with blockchain, um, I felt that I would need to invest a lot of time to kind of make myself kind of familiar enough with, you know, how to, you know, how how it works, and 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 sort of really kind of to be, you know, that expert, which you know, I, I that that was sort of a decision that I took that I I wanted to kind of put my put, put my focus and attention elsewhere, um, and certainly, you know, in part that was driven um, because there are others in um, in the in the labs and in Thomson Reuters generally who sort of are much more knowledgeable about that. Um, so one of my colleagues, David von Rickenbach, he he's kind of been our point person on on blockchain. I I think sort of the the thing that um you know I think we're sort of very trans transparent about within Thomson Reuters is um you know uh, blo- like like any tool or like any approach, um, blockchain isn't something that is the answer to to everything. <laughs> um, it's a it's a tool that you want to apply in certain scenarios and, and and to do that well. And, and certainly, I know that, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned, um, you know, earlier, kind of my, my sort of role, um, engaging with our customers. So, so one of the things that I'm focusing on um, this year is spending a lot more of my time personally engaging with our, our customers and running sessions with them and connecting them to our projects. Um, and certainly, when we've had sessions with with customers to show some of the the early work that we've done um around blockchain you know one of the big discussion topics we have as part of that is to really understand from our customers where where do you see the the benefits or you know in which scenarios do you see the benefit of applying um blockchain because you know i sometimes sort of see people in the in the twitter sphere um you know with the sort of the memes of saying you know Here's, here's a blockchain solution but what you really needed was a database and um, you know I think um, that's something that is a debate that needs to be had because there are advantages to blockchain but there also you know there are disadvantages and um, uh, I personally I guess I'm a peripheral observer to to kind of understanding where those right use cases are. But I think certainly there will be some of them. Um, You know, I think we've, we've certainly seen, um, you know, opportunities at things like, um, uh, you know, digital courts where there's, there's opportunity to, um, uh, to kind of use that sort of approach. Um, But I think we're, we're sort of still in that early stage of really kind of, identifying what are the compelling um applications to to go after with uh, with blockchain
1: so what you're telling me is that you don't you do not have a people nft on your desktop right now
0: <laughs> no i don't and i actually i guess i i should be yeah i feel like i should be asking you this question because you, you i think you're much more uh, clued in, in blockchain <laughs> than i am but. I will
1: not go down. We're not going to waste people's time with that. But the NFTs are the non-fungible tokens, um, the art craze, the music craze. And eventually, I would say that this is going to be applied to probably uh, anything of value. So the tokenization of all assets, um, which I personally believe will have a major impact on the legal industry when it comes to transactions, transactional business, as well as litigation side. So tracking things back to ownership, Uh, but we'll see. You're right. It could be just a database solution. Why do blockchain when you can do a database? Um, But we'll see how that goes. All right. So in closing, I'd love to see if you have any any vision, your lens on what potentially the legal tech industry looks like um, maybe two or five years down the road. If you want to go 10 years, that'd be great. Is there anything that excites you about um, the legal industry? I know you spend your time in certainly tax and accounting, Maybe a little bit on the new side with Reuters, but focused on on legal for the moment. Anything that excites you about where the business, where the world is going in that frame, in that lens?
0: So, and and actually, just um, yeah, you're you're right that sort of in the in the labs we we look um, across all of the sectors that uh, that Thomson Reuters looks at, but um, increasingly, you know, I've been uh, focused on. Um, uh on on the legal industry and um you know i think there are there there are obviously kind of a number of trends some of some of them we've you know already talked about you know I, i made the made the sort of point around you know data as an asset and data curation i think um i get i guess at the risk of sounding a little too too corporate you know i think there is a there's a clear trend towards sort of integration within the legal tech industry and so you know i think things that um uh Thomson reuters has been doing around uh you know legal home um uh, as as the kind of the a a view on a number of legal tech applications and um and data sources and so forth that you have you know having that in an integrated place i think that's a trend that we will see continuing i think um you know, one of the one of the things that we didn't talk about um, in the context of the pandemic, but I think is, um, you know, a, a trend where we've we've clearly seen massive acceleration is around you know tech adoption, um, you know, systems that you know either hadn't been rolled out or had been rolled out but weren't that used, you know, suddenly being used much more uh, regularly because people are at at home and and have um, uh, Fewer options in terms of how they can can get at certain information, and so I think we will see continued um, progress to, around kind of integration, kind of the user experience around those systems. So you know, I think that's kind of the sort of the the kind of key key trend that I would sort of see as like <laughs> a safe bet. Um, and um, then I think when we sort of Talk beyond that and talk about um, you know AI systems and approaches or different different kind of products and tools that help you with certain um, certain uh, opportunities. I think that um, that trend towards uh, integration um, of both the you know software itself but also the data that sits behind it. Um, you know, I think will leave us in a really exciting place and so you know it's 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 kind of hard to paint that picture of two five ten years hence but you know i i guess at at the risk the risk of being um uh (laughs) cheesy i once read um uh something on one of the sort of like popular ai articles where you know it was actually sort of um taking an analogy from um medicine and you know, it was saying, or it was talking around. You know, adoption of um, AI systems by um, by doctors or medical practitioners more generally, and you know, it, it used a phrase that was that was really quite interesting that stuck with me, which is um, that the question's not so much, you know, would you want your doctor to be using an AI system to make decisions, but more, would you trust a doctor who's not in some way tapping into the much broader, you know, knowledge and, and expertise that come from being able to access and then interpret all of that information. And so, you know, I think we'll sort of see a parallel of that in many industries in and in particular in in the legal industry. So I think there will there will come that demand from um anyone who, who's engaging with uh, with the legal industry to to say well you know what what systems are you using to um, to kind of tap into all of that knowledge and insight and and kind of join the dots um, and then use that to make your decision and so I think you know that's pressure around expectation from um, you know ultimately the uh, the customers of of law firms or or the legal departments in in corporations, you know, or us as end um, end users, will drive that demand towards um, you know greater adoption of tools, but also that greater integration and and kind of combination of of different tools and approaches to give you that insight.
1: Fantastic. So I guess one last thing that I'd mention on this, because I, I really respect what you're saying, because clearly you're very knowledgeable about this, and it's been fantastic to have you on. I My lens is so maybe skewed in some respects. I feel like, uh, with the, I think the autonomous vehicle is probably the best example. Um, as these things continue to roll out, and let's say in, in 15 years when that's pretty much what we have on the road, people will look back and say, why in the world Did we wait this long before we had a computer making decisions for us? Because now we are vastly safer. Instead of 70,000 people sadly losing their lives in the US each year because of accidents, uh, it's now down to whatever, 50 or 1,000, whatever the case is. And sadly, I think that's gonna creep into a lot of the other industries, professional industries. Um, But the best thing that I personally see is that there are things that we don't even know about or can't even conceive of that will allow for lawyers, doctors, to move in new directions with new um, applications that are out there new ways of thinking about things that will provide them the opportunity to to grow into that space. We will see. I can't wait for it all (laughs) if I'm around uh, at this stage, but hey, Andrew, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time, uh, the thoughtfulness that you give to all of this, uh, what your team is working on, again, to me is so vital to the industry. So
0: thank you very much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. The Hearing.
1: Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Hearing as much as I've enjoyed hosting it today. Please join me for our exciting upcoming episodes where amazing people and their remarkable stories meet the cross-section of the law and technology. If you would like, please give us a rating. Feel free to review us and subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll be notified of new episodes as they come out. Also, if you would like to connect with me on Twitter, it's at Joe Raz, that's J-O-E-R-A-Z-Z. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.
0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash The Hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.